Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello, welcome to Sibylline Podcast series. I'm Goyu, lead Asia Pacific analyst. Join me today are two of my fellow APA analysts, Supriya Ravishanka and Adam Modichai. We will discuss the devastating floods in Pakistan and the likely political, economic, and security implications. Now, record high monsoon rainfall has resulted in the worst floods in Pakistan's modern history, eating large parts of the country. With about one third of the country submerged underwater, the floods has affected more than 60% of the population, and as the death toll continued to climb, well existing 1,000. Given the very limited institutional capacity, the unfolding natural disaster will therefore further destabilize Pakistan's fragile economy and put fresh challenges to the under pressure Prime Minister Shabazz Shahid's government in the months ahead. And this is all happening amid the ongoing political wrangling uh, between the government and the opposition led by the uh, quicker-term politician XPN in Rang Khan. So following this bit of context, Supriya, if I go to you first, perhaps you could give us a brief overview of the current situation in terms of the floods and the direct impact to business operations so far. Are there any signs of destruction level been seen in the media reports being sort of unprecedented, and many say this is uh, one of the worst natural disasters that Pakistan ever experienced in, in, in many years. Thank you, Hugo. Yeah, so four out of six of Pakistan's provinces, namely Sindh, Balochistan, areas of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and southern bits of Punjab, have primarily been impacted. But really, Sindh and Balochistan have been the hardest hit. So, for example, Reports from earlier today said that the Daru district was facing floods as high as eight to nine feet at this point. And Sindh really is the second largest province in Punjab. It's 43 million people, of course, but also very, very important for the country's agricultural sector. It provides a quarter of the country's agricultural output and key crops like rice and cotton have been destroyed. These were crops that were just recovering from the heat waves earlier in March and May. And in terms of Balochistan, the place has been almost entirely cut out from the rest of the country. 32 out of 34 districts have been extensively damaged. Rail, road and telecommunication networks are still disrupted. That This has really affected relief operations. The army is trying to build bridges there to try and help those still stranded. But there is definitely going to be significant disruptions to businesses that have supply chains that run particularly through these two provinces, really just because it's quite unsafe to use the roads, at least for the next couple of weeks. And aid is, of course, coming in from across the world to try and help the situation. But I fear that the worst is still yet to be seen. Rains are expected to continue into September. These were supposed to stop in August. And health experts are warning that diseases like malaria and cholera are going to start spreading a lot more extensively in the next four to 12 weeks, which is something that honestly, Pakistan's health infrastructure is not really in a position to withstand right now. But on the question on whether it's unprecedented, 
Of course, the damage is unlike anything we've ever seen, but really to the 2010 floods, that damage was also described as unprecedented. And there was a detailed inquiry that took place after those floods that resulted in a 600-page report that made recommendations to the government about investing in early flood warning systems, about researching into shifting weather patterns, and none of this was really done. In fact, the government decided to invest in big infrastructure projects that really ended up aggravating the situation, changing the natural flow of rivers, leading to deforestation, and really leaving Pakistan more vulnerable than before. So, of course, climate change has a huge role to play in what we're seeing today, but many South Asian countries are very vulnerable to climate change because of their geographical location, because of the state of their economies. And I think that Pakistan hasn't really been able to acknowledge that vulnerability and work on it. So I fear that unless this flood is a wake-up call and there really are some institutional reforms set into place, the next floods could possibly also be described as unprecedented. Thank you, uh, Supriya. And a very, very good point to make about the possibility of faults in government planning, urbanization, and willing to really recognize the risk of climate change-induced and extreme weather patterns. And obviously, this potentially would lead some questions about government and will lead some potential political consequences from this disaster, which we will discuss later on. Am I right to think that the worst affected areas in Pakistan are also key driver or key economic powerhouses? Uh, think about things which have Karachi as its capital center for uh, Pakistan's finance sector. Um, and there are other sort of key cities being, being hit by the floods. So what are the um, main impact for Pakistan's, uh, as we mentioned from the top, already quite fragile uh, economy? which has been super states, you know, having been hit by the pandemic, but also uh, soaring commodity prices you know, influenced by the war in Ukraine. And government's early sort of estimates put a flat cost to at least, you know, 10 billion US dollars. And, and this would be uh, difficult, I guess, for the government to afford the recovery program alone and, and needing a lot of foreign aid. So with that in mind, what the potential short-term and long-term impact to, to the economy? Yeah, you're correct. Considering how much of the, the country has been affected by the floods, productivity in key industries such as agriculture will be um, severely impacted in the short to medium term, considering how long it will, will take to recover. And as you mentioned, it comes at, of course, a disaster like this never comes at a good time. But uh, from an economic point of view, Pakistan is particularly in a vulnerable position recently, much of it of its own undoing. They recently managed to get the approval from the IMF for further funds to be released, essential funds in terms of being able to, to avoid a short-term default. In order to do that, they had to agree to some difficult conditions that won't go down well with the population in terms of cutting subsidies to fuel and increasing tax, etc., but uh, IMF see this is necessary for Pakistan's long-term fiscal situation to be stable, to stabilize after years of really mismanagement in that area. And the, all the factors from external uh, in terms of the, the economy and the economic headwinds internationally uh, to internally, uh, where, as I mentioned, that the floods will, will damage key industries such as agriculture, but uh, also worsen uh, rising food prices domestically 
when you consider the lost produce, when you consider depreciating Pakistan rupee, which makes uh, imports of key items like that more expensive. When you consider all these things, the damage for the floods is even worse. I think in the short to the medium term, if things don't worsen in terms of further floodings, etc., they may be able to avoid the default, which we saw, you know, ravage Sri Lanka's ability to basically purchase any imports, including fuel. And unlike Sri Lanka, Pakistan is quite reliant on imported sources of fuel, which also drive a lot of their power generation within the country. If they lost that ability to do that, they lost the key lines of credit to purchase fuel, you know, the consequences for, for disruption and productivity in the country would be obviously far worse. At the same time, um, like you said, the, the cost of the floods, the long-term cost is, is estimated to be at least 10 billion at this point. Paris does, does not have resources to do that. They'll be very reliant on, on further loans, further bailout packages, also international aid at a time when countries are across the world feeling the pinch economically. And I imagine it will be difficult to receive and raise the level of funds from international aid that, that is necessary which will, I think, will delay the, the recovery process when the, the long-term damage becomes clearer. So overall, it doesn't paint a good picture in, in the short, medium, or long-term, unfortunately. And there will be a number of factors to watch in terms of will Pakistan be able to weather this? I mentioned weather conditions are improving. Of course, this is, is out of country's control. Other external headwinds to macroeconomic conditions, such as the rupee, uh, the rupee is stabilizing and not falling any further. If the US Federal Reserve increases interest rates further, that would, again, put down the pressure on the rupee, make it imports, which is now more vital than ever with their inability to produce their own agriculture produce and, and other items that I mentioned. These are the things to watch to see if economic conditions can stabilize in, in the medium term. Otherwise, it doesn't look very positive for Pakistan. Okay, thanks, Aidan. So what we are saying is, although it is in a very difficult situation, and we may be so in the near and medium future, but it's unlikely to be as severe as Sri Lanka, at least in terms of economy. And thinking along sort of similar lines and uh, looking at politics, obviously we all know the significant political turmoil was in Sri Lanka, now, are we likely to think something similar taking place in Pakistan, thinking of the impact of the flood on uh, public perception or public opinions towards the still relatively new government, but also the likelihood of uh, opposition led by Iran Khan to capitalize the public's uh, grievances uh, or hardship from the floods to mobilize its campaign? So regarding the economy, Pakistan's economy has definitely been in dire straits for quite some time. I mean, let's not forget that the initial no-confidence motion against the Imran Khan government was led, in fact, by Shabar Sharif, based on the fact that he wasn't able to like handle the economy really well and there was high levels of inflation. So Pakistan hasn't made that much progress, if you think about it, under the new government, which is, as you said, deeply unpopular. And this is really because of partially the IMF itself, because the government had to take really tough measures in, in order to secure that loan, which involved raising taxes. In fact, just this morning, it once again raised taxes on electricity. And 
this is something that's going to sustain that level of unpopularity. And like you said, something Imran Khan is going to end up capitalizing on. And he already has, and he's warned that he's going to continue holding anti-government rallies. Despite the ongoing national emergency, the tussle between the two parties, so to speak, will continue. And yes, there is a, a very high likelihood that if the government continues to really increase the hardships on the common man at a time like this, that there could definitely be some kind of a mass movement against the government, probably led by Imran Khan. But in terms of the impact of the political tussle on the immediate situations of the floods, just because usually in Pakistan under such situations, it's not really the government, but it's more the army, local administrations, international NGOs, volunteers and civil society groups that really take on the responsibility of providing relief. There hasn't been the impact of the political tussle hasn't really percolated into relief efforts, so to speak, which is a good thing. But I think one thing that this, the floods can do is really raise public awareness in terms of the public now wanting a future government that can be held more accountable to the public in terms of in terms of handling of natural disasters, in terms of everyday governance, and so to speak. And I think this is going to be a big topic in the next general election, which is expected to be next year, but possibly all year of Imran Khan has its way. Thanks, Supriya, for, for the comments on political implications. And you mentioned about uh, Imran Khan will capitalize you know, the fallout from the floods and push for early election in, and also continue their anti-government campaign. Now, what's our view on the election prospects? Is an early election still outlier uh, scenario? So the Shabar Sharif administration has hinted that they definitely will aim to complete their term and they don't want early elections. And though there has been some amount of tension between alliance partners, it seems to look like they are, will be successful in being able to carry on to the end of their term. But Imran Khan's anti-government campaigns are definitely gaining ground and they are gaining steam. It's gaining support, not just from Pakistanis from the country, but also among the diaspora. And the pressure will definitely still be on for an early election. But definitely, I think not until the end of this year, because I think the floods will really be front and center of, of what everyone's thinking about. And that's really going to take up all the energy and resources of the state. But Possibly, maybe if the anti-government campaigns continue the way that they are, and like I said, if really the cost of living crisis becomes unbearable, then possibly we may just see elections earlier than expected sometime next year. Just to add, move away slightly from the, the shorter term political implications, is that Imran Khan doesn't obviously represent uh, new blood in terms of uh, the political system. He, he's former prime minister. Neither does, while Shabazz Sharif's uh, government is, is relatively new, he, he's an old hand in the government. He's the brother of a three-time prime minister. And, and as we've illustrated, the, these problems, both in terms of economic mismanagement and uh, inability to build resilience to natural disasters, they're long-term implications of government mismanagement. And an early election may you know, result in a change of government. But I think the prospects of having the sort of change of government that Pakistan needs in terms of structurally and, and sustainably improving the situation do look slim at the moment. So 
think that's one thing to to look for in terms of maybe longer term implications or, or lack of implications. Yeah, I think it's certainly a point worth making. You know, obviously, it, the Iran Khan's government cannot escape all the blame of the mismanagement of you know Pakistan's flood defense or the failure in improving, uh, as you said, uh, resilience against natural disasters. I guess the last point, if we can look a little bit at the security situation, and Supriya, you mentioned that relief efforts uh, was mainly led by the army and the NGOs, and the army obviously has been really spearheading these type of operations. So what does that mean for the military's and security forces capacity at the moment in terms of in the tackling and monitoring activities of you know, quite a few active uh, terrorists and militant groups in the country? Yeah, that's a great question. So definitely the army has invested almost all of its resources right now in flood relief efforts, particularly in terms of its helicopters and because it, it's a massive part of like aerial lifts and, and whatnot. So yes, it is stretched a bit thin right now. And it's come at a time when there is increasing levels of hostility between the Taliban government in Afghanistan and Pakistan as well. And particularly in terms of militant groups, the TTP or the Pakistan Taliban, and has almost, um, I mean, the, the ceasefire conversations and the peace negotiations have, between the TTP or the Pakistan Taliban and the government of, of Pakistan have almost entirely broken down. And this, again, puts a little bit more of pressure on the, on the Pakistan army at a time where it's really devoted to helping those in the flood. So this does increase this, the risk of an attack being more successful if indeed these are carried out in the next in the next in the upcoming few weeks but also in terms of if there is something like a mass unrest in the country the army as well as other special security forces won't really be able to help local authorities in preventing any law and order situation despite the fact that there are of course police forces in each province the army does tend to get involved in if the situation gets out of hand and these are things that it won't be able to help in. Also, things like local elections. The Sindh elections had to be pushed. The, the local Sindh elections had to be pushed because there wasn't enough personnel for the army to be deployed, again, to prevent any law and order situation, which is something that's quite common during polling days. And there's always post-poll violence. So these kind of events, unfortunately, the army wouldn't, at this point, be able to contribute in terms of securing the domestic environment. So in the next upcoming weeks, it's quite likely that the army will be stretched quite thin. Right. And also that means there's a potentially heightened risk for, for business and for personal safety as well for people operating on the ground. And, and especially thinking of, you know, the pouring of uh, NGO activities and to help of, uh, in the humanitarian relief efforts, flood relief efforts. And this is something certainly to watch out for. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There are thousands of humanitarian workers now officially in Pakistan. And many of them are, of course, in places that are very difficult to reach because they're obviously surrounded by floods. So the army themselves can't get there, which will make it even more harder. Thank you very much, Sophia and Aidan. And this wraps up our analysis and assessment for the uh, Pakistan's flood situation and the potential impact. Uh, on economy, on politics, and on security. 
for more analysis on the Pakistan flood situation and implications, uh, we have uh, recently released situation update brief on the country. So uh, make sure you look out for that. And now I would like to introduce Tom Carter, our associate analyst for the Europe team, and to look at across the globe, what are the events uh, we will be monitoring in the coming weeks. Tom, over to you. Thank you very much. So in Europe, on the 5th of September in the United Kingdom, the Conservative leadership contest ends. The Conservative leadership election between the 12th of July and the 5th of September will decide whether Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak will become the new leader of the Conservative and the next Prime Minister of the country. A Liz Truss premiership is looking like the most likely outcome. Meanwhile, on the 11th of September in Sweden, a general election takes place. The ruling Social Democrats can lose their majority, as recent polls indicate uh, that Sweden's right-wing bloc is slightly ahead of the Social Democrats. In Eurasia, Moldova has announced that it will be unable to make payments for gas owed to Russia's Gazprom from the 1st of September. Moldova's inability to make payments will cause significant disruptions to the country's gas supplies. Short-term disruptions to supplies will worsen the cost of living crisis and impact business operations. Pro-Russian actors will probably leverage this to drive anti-government sentiment. In Latin America, on the 7th of September, Brazil, Independence Day demonstrations take place. Supporters of President Jair Bolsonaro plan to stage a large rally in Rio de Janeiro to coincide with the official Independence Day celebrations. Large demonstrations and counter demonstrations are likely, with the event set to attract both pro and anti Bolsonaro supporters. Isolated clashes between opposing groups are highly likely, increasing incidental risk to bystanders. For Asia Pacific, on the 3rd of September in South Korea, pre-departure COVID-19 PCR test requirements will be scrapped. On the 3rd of September, all inbound travellers to South Korea, regardless of their nationality and vaccination status, will not be required to provide a pre-departure negative PCR test. The policy change will be welcomed by the tourism sector and will likely benefit the country's socioeconomic health growth. Meanwhile, on the 4th of September in India, rally planned in New Delhi by the Opposition Congress Party. The Mahanga Pahalabol rally is aimed at pushing the government to better mitigate the impact of rising prices in the country. Localised traffic disruptions in the capital can be expected, along with heightened security. And finally, for MENA, on the 9th of September in Tunisia, postponed date for strike action by air traffic controllers is set to take place. The strike was originally postponed from the 25th of August. If talks between labor unions and authorities fail, the strike is likely to result in cancellation and delays to passenger and cargo flights at airports across the country for several days. Thank you very much, Tom. It looks like certainly going to be another very busy week for, for us. And we will make sure that we will maintain our coverage on all these important uh, events and issues. My thank you to Supriya and Aidan and to Tom. And I hope you enjoy this podcast. Until next week, goodbye.